You are listening to Why Can't We Have It All, a podcast focused on exploring the missing pieces in our healthcare system. This podcast is sponsored by Bowtie Medical, an innovative healthcare company that offers integrated virtual healthcare designed to keep you in control of your health and what you spend on it while lowering the cost of healthcare for you. Hello and welcome back to another episode of Why Can't We Have It All? I'm your host, Dr. Donish Geary. This episode is the third installment of our series, analyzing the problematic gap between the two existing parts of our healthcare system, the public health system uh, on one side and our hospital-based sick care system, as we've called it in this series. In our previous conversations, after describing and explaining this gap, we uncovered the truth that there is a fundamental misalignment between the functions of the public health and this uh, hospital-based sick care system. And to continue our conversation, uh, I'm joined today again with Bernard Evanhurst and Aditi Deshmukh, uh, my colleagues uh, who are joining this conversation. As you remember, Bernard is a, a medical student, a very good one. And Aditi is a master in public health who will attend the medical school next year. Welcome back, guys. So um, let us uh, first discuss the public health system. Um, as I understand, this program works and aims to design, implement, and monitor preventive measures on larger scales at the public level. And reducing the hazards of health, health disturbances in the general population, uh, public health uh, sector functions at the federal, state, and local levels, and there is funding associated with each level. Uh, public health department focus on facilitating clean water, clean food, vaccination, education, and monitoring, gathering information regarding sources of infection. And frankly, the return on investment uh, on public health initiative has been tremendous. Uh, these uh, collective agencies have largely being credited to eliminate the infectious diseases leading cause of death uh, since the previous century. Aditi, uh, what else is there for public health to do? Um, I think you covered it really well, Dr. Danishkeri. Um Overall, the functions of public health um, are serviced within the three core areas of public health itself, which are protection, prevention, and promotion. Thank you, Aditi. Um, on the other hand, the uh, primary function of the hospital-based uh, sick care system uh, has been to diagnose and treat diseases only after they have appeared. As Bernard said, after the chief complaints uh, appear, which is kind of kick-starts the involvement of the physician. Is that true, Bernard? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, to put it into the perspective of the bowtie model that we discussed last session, um, public health really functions on the left hand of that model, whereas everything regarding the hospital-based sick care system is really to the right of the model. After the incident of disease actually occurs, after a chief complaint is available to discuss, that's when the hospital-based sick care system really kicks in, starts to diagnose and treat these conditions that uh, are manifesting as symptoms. And um, really, over the past few, few decades, scientific research within this hospital-based sick care system 
has generated a lot of information on the risk factors related to those diseases. So really more information regarding the left hand of that bow tie. And furthermore, how to potentially mitigate those risks and avoid the incidence of disease and the appearance of more common diseases like um, and, and chronic conditions like diabetes, like obesity, uh, cardiovascular disease, cancer, um, other diseases. Um, really, given this increase in knowledge about the risks that lead to these diseases, the logical strategy would be to mitigate those risk factors that put a person at risk of developing those diseases instead of waiting until one has symptoms as a result of those diseases. So in this sense, the knowledge generated from the hospital-centered sick care system really leads us into a way where we should be approaching health in a more preventive manner, even from the sick care system. But as you know, uh, this hospital-based sick care system has somehow taken this, uh, what you explained, the scientific information that we have about the left side of the bow tie, how to prevent or mitigate the risk, by advocating use of additional tests and the procedures like uh, colonoscopies, a screening for prostate cancer, mammography for breast cancer, bone density for osteoporosis, cholesterol and lipid profile checking for cardiovascular risk. But these are all the things that the sick care system could do to make money uh, because there are, again, additional tests and procedures. Now, these measures can be beneficial at large. However, this is an incomplete solution, as you mentioned. If we look at what happens after screening, after a positive occurs from screening, well, it's a whole uh, battery of medical procedures. There's a, a disease-based uh, approach and disease-based management. Yes. Now, the logical approach wouldn't be this incomplete. The problem here is that we're still after the incidence of a disease okay. occurring, whereas we should be looking okay. further upstream into mitigating health risk factors. And the number one problem I have with this is confusing the consumer. Consumer thinks that these are the preventive measures. But in reality, as we discussed, these are not preventive measures. These are basically picking up a disease at this early stage. Preventive measures, as you both have said, is focus on the left side of the bow tie. Aditi? Um, definitely. Just to add to that, Dr. Danishkari, um, I do think the whole ad, uh, addressing of this is largely due to the limitations within medicine itself. When you're talking about preventive screenings, such as the colonoscopy or prostate cancer screenings or regardless, but um, you're ultimately what you're doing is you're searching for methods of early diagnosis, not prevention. We're, again, finding different procedures or diagnosis methods to identify the not early, but regardless, it's still a not. But they label it as uh, preventive. It's like... Uh, uh and that is, I think, confuses the, confuses the public, uh, that this is the prevention. This is really, as you said, is diagnostic. Um, so terminologies do matter here in terms of direction of uh, the public as we are trying to address the health of the public. So now I think we have explained, the, refreshed our minds, if you will, about the, uh, the 
parts of these two parts of the healthcare system, the public health on one corner and secure system on the other side, with all the goods and uh, flaws in the system. We discovered that there's a misalignment in addition to uh, uh, to other uh, points we discussed between the work of public health and this hospital-based secure system. Aditi, could you refresh our mind about this misalignment since you brought it up? Sure. Um, as we discussed earlier, public health and clinical medicine is certainly has great differences, um, and most of that gap is much related to that misalignment between the two fields itself. They have differences in their goals, approaches, and motivations. So firstly, when you look at public health, there's a much greater emphasis on l- addressing long-term problems or health problems versus clinical medicine is more focused towards the immediate problem at hand. Um, a small example of this would be, for example, a heart attack. Um, the physician's focus when a person a heart attack has happened is to ultimately restore the physical state or well-being of the patient itself. Their focus is immediate. So pretty much how can they get themselves recovered back on their feet and how does the process of recovery shorten? But when it comes to public health, the problem has already occurred by them. The efforts of public health rely on getting, not even getting to that process, not even getting to that heart attack. As we mentioned in our earlier segment, public health efforts are um, more focused on the left side of that bow tie model, which is under prevention techniques. Public health is much more focused, emphasized on the factors that help control the event from occurring, whereas clinical medicine is much more focused on a recovery mindset of how to mitigate risk or prevent loss when it comes to after the fact or aftermath um, of the event itself. So this misalignment of goals is definitely what plays at hand in servicing the widening of the gap between public health and um, clinical medicine itself, because the mentality of public health is more focused towards looking at preventive techniques or mitigating risk to prevent the event from happening, whereas clinical medicine is much more focused at mitigating the aftermath risk of reducing loss from the event itself. Of course, when I refer to clinical medicine, I'm referring to the hospital-based sick care system. Now, along with that, there is a second misalignment of supply when it comes to public health and hospital-based care systems. There is a significant amount of types of diagnoses, preventive measures in within the medical range, or procedures that we can take when after the event has occurred, or clinically diagnosing the event. However, that same volume is not reflected on the public health side when it comes to prevention. Uh, so you explained it nicely, Aditi, that there is this misalign- there's a misalignment in <clears throat> terms of not only the functions of these two systems of our healthcare, but misalignments in this uh, their supply. Uh, as you said, there is too little of public health and too much of sick care system. And the question is why? Why this misalignment exists there? Absolutely, and. Um, the fact that there is a healthcare metropolis, if you will, where I go to medical school, I don't think is really a uh, coincidence. I think uh, Aditi kind of touched on this, and you you as well. Um, but it's really an unwe- unequal uh, distribution of funding for these two systems. If, as you mentioned, 
you consider the public health system, well, the amount of money, the amount of funding that public health initiatives get, it's not outside of the domain of political pressure. In fact, political interests, the caprice of political opinion um, is very deterministic in how much money public health departments get to uh, fund uh, whatever initiatives they're trying to uh, pr promote health with. Uh, you can imagine how quickly the vaccination programs in Ohio would move if uh, there wasn't so much media coverage and public opinion pressing this onward. Uh, the, uh, so certainly that, that becomes a bottleneck. Funding becomes a bottleneck. So it becomes a necessity that public health has a absolutely phenomenal return on investment. However, if we consider the hospital-controlled sick care system, the funding, uh, as Edidi mentioned, the hospital-controlled sick care system, their services focus on the individual. Well, I don't think this is a coincidence either, but the funding itself comes from that individual as well. Uh, if we consider how most of medicine is funded, it's funded in a fee-for-service manner, as we mentioned. Um, the scalability of the business model for most, most of hospital-controlled sick care system is directly related to how many services are rendered. And therefore, the more services you render, the more colonoscopies you perform, uh, the more screenings you perform, the more procedures, surgeries, etc., uh, more patients you see, these are all more services that can then be billed. And therefore, when you have a metropolis of healthcare, well, you do a couple logical steps upstream, and there must be an entire enormity of services backing, funding that, uh, that's that metropolis. So therefore, um, there's, there's really a differential scaling of these two models. One scales based off of pol political interest, one scales based off of how many services they can provide. And as a result, you have a ballooning of the hospital-controlled sick care system, whereas you have a relative stagnation of the public health system. Um, and I think these are really intrinsically ingrained within the structures of these two systems. Um, as we discussed before, even when the hospital-controlled sick care system attempts to move closer to the left side of the bow tie towards upstream factors, towards more preventative measures, as they call it, preventive, um, really what they're doing is just adding more entry points into the algorithm where a person will obtain more and more uh, medical procedures, where they are roller coastered from one point to the next. You know, it, it, really, it really begs the question, where is the entry point into healthcare? Um, if it is the case that the improvements of the hospital-controlled sick care system rests in where the patient enters the sick care system, I think it, it would be very important to identify that exact entry point. Uh, you said it very well. Uh, you is on the left side of the bow tie. There's a shrinkage, frankly. Uh, the public health department used to have some clinical uh, services. And the, the right side is the never-ending ballooning. But what you also correctly pointed out uh, uh, is another misalignment within this uh, hospital-based uh, secure system uh, that... Uh, has been created very quietly, silently, but definitely progressively 
over the past two decades. And that is consolidation of the hospital systems uh, because as you said uh, correctly, this uh, metropolis needs a feeder. And the way they have figured out to do the feeding is to go to the communities and hire all the primary care physicians uh, to in the major uh, markets. So if you, for example, come to Northeast Ohio, uh, the majority of the physicians are owned by one of these systems there. And the reason for this is because this uh, systems, the hospital system, need feeders. So the community-based family physicians, pediatrician, uh, internal medicine, people who are physicians, we call them primary care, are increasingly being employed by the systems uh, because uh, they need them to refer their patients from those communities to one of the you know, big system, the hospital systems. Uh, and there's a terminology they use internally. They call it the keepage. Uh, or prevent the leakage. The reason I uh, pick it up as a misalignment is uh, you could really de deliver or divide uh, the right side of the system, if you will, into two big categories. One is the primary care, and one is the specialty care. Primary care by its nature, a uh, few things. One is their job is to uh, provide services that are of primary needs of the patient. And the intention of those services are to prevent escalation of those symptoms or escalation of the health concern to a point that person doesn't need advanced, you know, care, surgeries and, you know, uh, diagnosis and treatment. So that is really ultimately the job of the primary care uh, physician. Um, I think uh, a really good analogy to envision this sort of relationship between a primary care physician and a specialist is kind of like football. Um, primary care physicians are often compared to the quarterbacks of healthcare, the mm -hmm. quarterbacks of the team. They start off with the ball. They read the defense of the opposing team. Mm -hmm. That would be the, the um, <laughs> symptoms, the onset of a disease. And depending on that, they decide, should I hand it off to the running back who might be a nephrologist? Should I pass it to a receiver? Should that, maybe that's a, a cardiologist? Uh, frankly, they are, they perform triage in a sense, or they take in information in the form of symptoms, patient's chief complaints, patient's background, health history. Or, or health risks. You know, if I come to you and you're my primary care physician and you haven't seen me for three months, but you notice that I have put in another 30 pounds, right? Although it may not be a chief complaint, you're going to say, what's going on, Fuse? Uh, what's going on? Why are you adding this weight, right? Absolutely. And depending on that information, they decide to uh, pass the patient wherever they think is the best decision. Now, I think you're absolutely correct. There is a misalignment here because if primary care physicians are somehow structurally incentivized to send the patient to a place where maybe that's not their best interest. Maybe it's a hospital that takes a 45 minute drive. Maybe it's to a specialist where, you know, maybe the patient uh, instead needs a little bit of preventive coaching rather than uh, treatment. Um, these are all factors that could actually work against the patient's best interest. Right. That's why this recruitment of the primary care physicians, which was a really a, 
corporation financial strategic move by this hospital-based secure system has fundamentally changed this alignment between the consumer of the health care, the individuals living in our communities, and primary care physicians. Uh, primary care physicians in majority of the markets uh, are no longer agents for the consumer by a referral catchment uh, for the hospital uh, system. Uh, please remember, we are discussing the trends here. I'm, not, I'm certain that uh, there are plenty of individual primary care physicians who do their best to uh, deliver health and protect the health of their, of their patients or their consumers. But this change in direction and function of primary care is perhaps the reason for uh, this misalignment between the function of the hospital basic care system and delivery of preventive care to keep our population healthy. You see, now I think we have discovered that the, the junction, uh, who is the feeder into this hospital system and where the cause of uh, misalignment exists, in addition and above the finances. So the financial needs of the hospitals led them to go and hire the primary care physicians. Uh, that hire and recruitment has changed the intent and the function of the primary care, and that has led to uh, that misalignment. I think you bring up a great point here, Dr. Danishkari, of financial incentives when it comes to um, primary care physicians being kind of the feeder into the ultimately the sick care system. Unfortunately, the incentives here have been so misaligned to the point where it's almost no return. It's pretty much a one-way door entry where if you go back to our whole model of the sick care system being on the right side of recovery and um, medical procedures, once you enter that system, there's no return to that left side of prevention, of fo public health-focused prevention, of systems outside of medical treatment. There's no such procedure that goes, and which is a limitation of medicine in itself, of a primary care doctor having to diagnose anything outside of their own system. Um, anything that a primary care doctor can do is either going to be a stepping stone further into the sick care system or is very much within the realms of medicine itself. That's a nice observation. Uh, this brings me to the next point that it seems that we have a U-shaped phenomenon here. Too little of public health and too much of sick care system. Uh, as you may know, this U-shaped phenomenon has been uh, described uh, as a nonlinear relationship between an independent and dependent variables, where U-shaped patterns could be found and has been studied in epidemiology, in psychology, in some parts of uh, medicine and economics, uh, where too little of uh, any services, any goods, is not good, is bad, and too much of it is bad. The simple examples in healthcare are uh, cholesterol, too little of cholesterol uh, versus too much of it, blood pressure, too little of blood pressure, too much of blood pressure, uh, alcohol use, and, and so forth. I think that's a great point. Um, a U-shaped curve is definitely a great way of describing the relationship between public health and the hospital sick care system. And if we look at our current state of our sick care system or healthcare in general, 
we have all the contributing factors that just enhance the u-shaped curve in itself the barriers there are significantly lots more barriers within public health itself that de-incentivize it to a matter to the fact where it's used in a much more limited manner however on the other side the hospital sick care system has much greater incentives to have increased amounts of services and procedures just as bernard said earlier ballooning the supply of services whereas there's a dearth of supply of services when it comes to public health systems i think this misalignment of primary care physicians with the interests of the patient um, that you've kind of described really presents a diagnosis of a real problem within the sick care uh, system, perhaps the fundamental problem um, that leads to these ballooning costs and expanding growth of uh, an inefficient system. Um, and because it's a diagnosis, it almost hints at a solution. I think Let's, let's try to envision an ideal world where the primary care physicians are not beholden to the hospital-controlled sick care system, where they are not incentivized structurally to refer, refer more and more patients to the hospital system to get railroaded from you know, one treatment, one procedure to another. Let's try to imagine that the function of a primary care physician was really to be an agent for the health of the healthcare consumer, the patient as we call it now. Uh, the role of the primary, primary care physician would be something to keep a person healthy to the extent and breadth that would eliminate any need for hospitalizations, short of traumas or any serious medical emergencies that need care right at this moment, of course. Now this would be almost antithetical to what the current role of the primary care physician in the current hospital-centered sick care system um, is right now. Um, furthermore, the physician-patient alignment could turn into something more intelligent, something more uh, consumer-oriented, uh, a unit that, you know, for example, in addition to the medical knowledge that primary care physicians have, maybe they would also be equipped with knowledge to shop for the services of specialists and hospitals uh, purely for the benefit of the consumer. Um, making these referral decisions based off of very intelligent information. Things like which place or provider has the fairest price of the available providers, which has the best health outcomes for this specific procedure, this specific health need. Um, which has the highest quality, quality customer service ratings uh, that are currently being collected. Um, in this sort of ideal situation, this idealized model, uh, the healthcare consumer then has an agent as a primary care physician who knows the complexities of healthcare, which really we can't really ex expect uh, any healthcare consumer to know all the complexities. It's way too complex. Uh, so the primary care physician would be an agent in knowing, helping navigate those complexities, as well as knowing the exact medical needs of the consumer. Uh, and given this information, given this advocacy, the primary care physician could therefore present the consumer with the best price, the highest quality of service, offered by the most appropriate, most timely, most convenient specialists in hospitals. This is 
a system that would require an inversion of the role of the primary care physician. In fact, a detachment from the hospital-centered uh, sick care system as it stands right now. That was a nice junction, uh, Bernard, uh, that we discussed in length these elements of the misalignment in two existing parts of the healthcare, and you are taking us to the next part. How could this be reversed, if you will? Uh, how basically the primary care physician function uh, could be realigned with the interest of the consumer of the healthcare. So with that concept being born, that primary care could uh, start to fill up the, that gap between the public health and the hospital-based secure system, the next set of questions are what other functions are there to guard the health of the consumer of the healthcare beyond and above the traditional primary care? What do you think, Bernard? Uh, absolutely. <clears throat> so I think uh, when you say beyond the traditional role of primary care, what we're alluding to here is that really this transformation from a primary care physician to a bowtie health guardian. What we're talking about here is really an expansion of the role of primary care. Um, in current primary care, medical training seems to be sufficient. But in order to make this transition, we will have to add additional piece of information, skills for the primary care physician in order to adopt this, this mantle of a bowtie health guardian. Things like uh, the ability to sift through all the available providers for a specific service, see who provides this service um, in a manner that fits the needs of this individual we're caring for, in a manner that's uh, appropriate to the uh, individual's ability to pay, in a manner that's, uh, that's convenient for the individual, so maybe choosing the provider that's five minutes away instead of 45 minutes away um, for and added on average $50. So equip the primary care, the way I'm hearing, uh, with some other services that may not necessarily be the, uh, the physician's job, but put the primary care within an agency concept, within a new structure, as we discussed before, that other services could be added, whether the other service is the price shopping for a healthcare or checking the quality of the specialist that I need to go to fix my knee or uh, a nutritionist that I need to get help with to you know, control my obesity or my habits to eat uh, junk food or a fitness uh, expert to help me with my exercise. So create the umbrella structure, the structure that we would, we call it the bowtie health guardianship, primary care, the clinical medicine, as Aditi said, plays a role there, but there are other functions that needs to be embedded or inserted in this, into this agency concept. Yes, certainly. I think the primary care physician becomes a central role within mm -hmm. this health guardian organization. The guardian is an entire organization, not just the primary care physician themselves. And given this cooperation between those added skills in the primary care physician, things like price shopping ability, people that specialize in that, people that specialize in more preventive measures, um, 
really that will facilitate cooperation between what was once the gatekeeper of the sick care system and say preventive measures that were previously only seen on say the public health sphere. I think Aditi could actually uh, tell us a little bit more about what preventive measures uh, might be taken in this right. setting. Right, Aditi, what uh, public health kind of initi initiatives or services or what have you could be added to this agency concept? Certainly, I think when you start with that agency model that you discussed earlier, um, we can start kind of degrading or cutting away at the limitations of primary care. Um, now, primary care doctors, like Bernard mentioned, are no longer gatekeepers of um, the sick care system. They no longer have that boundary of looking, not being able to look back. They can go on to the left side and start working away at the causes or um, preventive measures that would prevent the heart attack to begin with. So services such as looking at social factors that attribute to health or looking at environmental factors or looking at even, which may not be within the realm of medicine, but certainly do attribute to poor health and affect medical events. Um, and having access or an agency where primary care is linked with those public health measures and linked to services that a consumer needs um, within the healthcare sphere, you're once again focusing on, again, retaining that health guardianship. So I'm hearing is to really define the needs of an individual uh, to remain healthy, again, the health guardianship concept, applying all the left side of the bow tie, what are the risk prevention mitigation uh, things that this agency could do uh, and uh, basically build that agency around the need of that person, that we want to keep her healthy for the entire 100 years of her life expectancy uh, without chronic conditions. So this begs the question now that learning, we've learned from the uh, misalignments of the two systems, uh, public health and the secure system, is I think we have enough information here to define what I call the constitutional principles uh, for this bowtie health guardianship that we won't, uh, we have to employ, we have to uh, place into this agency uh, concept. Uh, therefore, we won't make the same mistakes uh, that we uh, we did with the other parts. So seems to me that the first element of that is the revenue model. Uh, it is clear to me now that the uh, funding for this uh, Bowtie Health Guardianship cannot be a public uh, funding, uh, as we discussed, that has its limitations, nor it could be uh, frequency of the services provided. Uh, so uh, the more I do for you, the more money I make. It really has to focus on the outcomes how successful the Bowtie Health Guardian is in protecting and keeping that per person healthy. So that is the first constitutional uh, rule. Do you agree with that? Most certainly, and I think that really picks away at the biggest barrier of public health measures today is there's no incentive when it comes to, first of all, sustaining these measures. And if everything has been done appropriately, there is no loss. So you never get to ultimately see or be able to monetize whatever you've gained 
in regards to if all your measures have been taken and put in place properly, there's not going to be any outcome. And as a result of that, you're most likely going to think everything has been working perfectly just the way it is. So creating an incentivization for a public health measure most certainly creates the most efficient system when it comes to outcomes and when it comes to, once again, picking that loss and incentivizing your providers to care for your consumer in regards to health outcomes. I, I agree. And, um, you know, just to tie it up with the sick care system, it's a little bit too easy to monetize, uh, uh, to reap what one sows, if you will, in the, the healthcare system. If you, uh, the sick care system, sorry. If you render more procedures, you're necessarily getting paid more. So there is that in- intrinsic structural incentive to perform more and more procedures. Now, I think we've this this first constitutional element is very appropriate because in order to solve the detriments of these two models, in order to uh, solve for this tendency to stagnate of the, the public health system and this tendency to balloon of the sick care system, we need to tailor very inextricably the outcomes, the scalability of the business model, in fact, the profitability, the profitability of the business model directly to the underlying goal, the underlying mission of the organization, which in this case is to keep people healthy, to keep people from developing symptoms, developing disease. And when you have the incentives of the providers directly tied to those outcomes, which we want from our healthcare system, and that results in the profit very directly, very deterministically, that solves, that is a model that solves for the deficiencies of both existing models. I agree uh, completely. The only thing I would use differently, I won't call them providers, I would call them the guardians. Because providers, again, the terminology is used in the sick care system as providing a service, whereas the essential intent of this agency is to guard and protect and uh, promote. Which leads me to the next level, which probably we are going to uh, uh, make this as a topic for our next podcast, and that is, as you know, health is a very personalized issue. and is different from other parts. For example, in the finances, there is this agency principle model where the financial advisors basically incentivize based on the outcome. How much money they make for my retirement account, they make money off of that. But that, I'm not sure if would 100% apply to this uh, health guardianship because it needs the engagement of the individual. You know, I can give you all the information you need about how to prevent diabetes <laughs> and so forth, but there has to be another level of personal engagement. It's not only for the efficiency and uh, productivity of the concept, by frankly opening the space for personal choices. Uh, Bernard and I discussed this in the past. You know, we live in a free society that we need to fulfill our life streams. And where does the personal, cultural um, differences and choices should play a role in this process? Because now we are talking about the deep down in our personal life. From the moment I get up, what should I do? Do I go and work out or not? Do I go and eat, you know, this breakfast or, and so forth? So i like to state some of the kind of questions as we are addressing this uh, personal 
choices issue or personal engagement, uh, I should say. And uh, we can add uh, other questions, of course. And the questions are, how should we create an alignment between the financial interest of these uh, guardians and those of the individuals? You know, what mechanism should be used? How can we help the individual to be an engaged partner with this bowtie health guardian? Um, as they say, you could take your horse to the water, but you know, can make him to drink from it. Or how does health guardians be responsive and aligned with the customized need of an individual? to allow personal, cultural, and uh, socioeconomical, really, choices. Um, is there any role for the new medium of communication that is popping out, at least in your generation, uh, the social media? Uh, you guys are increasingly using that instead of the old coffee shops uh, to, frankly, share every uh, moment of your lives with your peers and your friends and so forth. So. Uh, uh, are those proper questions? Are there other questions that needs to be applied uh, for us to uh, complete our list of constitutional uh, principles of these agency models? Well, I know of one other question, and this really channels my, uh, my background as um, kind of a computer science student, tech guy. Um, Really, when we're talking about these health risks, health behaviors, uh, previous health history, what we're talking about is really information and data. And as technology continues to evolve and we as a society are better adapted to handling and using technology to better our lives, <clears throat> it almost begs the question, what is the most efficient way of providing this information uh, to a person so they can use it to their best advantage in their choices. Um, as we've done with everything else, from books to cell phones to the internet, um, maybe once a week I get emails of book recommendations that are absolutely fitting for me based off of my, my internet browsing preferences. Now it would be excellent to see or to explore the possibilities of doing a similar thing, but with maybe health recommendations. Absolutely, and I think just to add on to Bernard's point and kind of connecting it with what you said earlier, Dr. Nanashkari, another question we should be asking is how can we reach the masses or how can we scale exactly. this impact? Yes. And I think right at that forefront would be IT and technology. Um, the fact that we are able to reach millions of people with just one post or the fact that we can have that ability to customize but still scale is only done through technology. Um, but with that being said, technology is one facet of that. Um, how can we use that customization or that knowledge that we have of preferences, of risk factors, of connections, of economic status, social factors, and environment, of risk factors, of all those, and customize um, actions of healthcare within our segments? So whatever impact that we're able to deliver to an individual how are we able to use that on a more population and even national level, for that matter? That was an elegant way of uh, concluding this session. Uh, we laid out the, the misalignment of the system. We defined the structural needs for the Bowtie Health Guardians, what uh, we need to 
apply into the design of those guardians and uh, to avoid some of the shortcomings and what are the uh, elements that we look forward to as you said, uh, mass distribute uh, the goods of this uh, guardianship. And with that, I want to thank you again, uh, Aditi and Bernard, for joining me today. Thank you so much, Dr. Lanishkari. It's always a pleasure to be with you and Bernard. I definitely learned a ton from you both. Uh, absolutely fantastic uh, uh, discussion to be a part of. Um, these issues are very important. and. Uh, I look forward to our future discussions to see yeah. what uh, stones we'll turn over next. Of course, we will discuss and dissect this further and want to thank you all for listening to today's episode of Why Can't We Have It All? I hope we have left you with a new idea to consider regarding the, uh, the missing gaps in our, in our healthcare system and uh, looking forward to the future discussion. Uh, I'm Dr. Donish Kerry, and this has been Why Can't We Have It All? You've been listening to Why Can't We Have It All? The Missing Pieces in Our Healthcare. This podcast is brought to you by Bowtie Medical. Visit us on the web at www.wcwha.com and send any questions and comments to info at wcwha.com.